Our second reading this morning is from Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read the first nine verses. Uh, I I think this is in the New King James Version. Hear the word of God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found any belonging to, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Can somebody pull me back in the speakers up here just a little bit? I'm a, I like to hear myself, but not too much. Okay. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the sweetness of this Sunday, and we thank you for the provision of the Sabbath. We thank you that you have set aside one day a week to be consecrated to you and to holy worship. We thank you that we're able to gather here in person, to gather online. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be present truly among us. Lord, I pray that you would mm, separate us for this hour from the concerns of the week, that you would allow us to rest in this time as we rejuvenate and get ready for the week to come. Lord, we do pray for those who are unable to be out because of physical limitations. We pray that you would make them strong in their body and in their spirit. We pray that you would comfort them each where they are this day. We pray for the leadership of the church as they seek to guide this congregation during times that are unusually uncertain. Lord God, we do recognize that all times are uncertain, but it seems like this time is more uncertain than we're accustomed to. And so we are more anxious than ever. And I pray that you would make us confident in you, that our trust would be in you. Father God, we pray that you would be preparing the way forward for us individually and as a congregation. We pray that you would give us peace in our hearts and peace in our homes, that you'd give us peace in our neighborhoods and peace in our nation. Father God, as we uh, turn to your word this morning, we pray that the same Holy Spirit which inspired it would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning and prepare us to receive what it is that you have for us. And these favors we do ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So for three days, Saul was blind. And yet in those three days, Saul saw for the first time. 
For three days, Saul had to be led by the hand because he couldn't see the way forward. And yet, during those three days, Saul saw the way and the truth and the life for the first time. I'm fascinated by Saul, by Paul. Of course, he was the great theologian of the first century church. Of course, his missionary journeys are the reason that you and I are even Christians. Of course, uh, Paul wrote a quarter of the New Testament, giving us, among other things, the very first written account of the Lord's Supper. It is impossible to imagine Christianity without Paul. And yet, that's not what fascinates me about him. What fascinates me about Paul, Saul, is his conversion. All of the Christian characters that we find in the New Testament were, of course, converted. All of them had a point at which they turned from what they were doing and they begin to do a new thing. They begin to follow Jesus. We don't know much about Peter and James and John, about their life before Jesus. But we do know that they weren't killing Christians. That's for sure. Saul was a bad hombre, as a certain president would say. We met him first at the killing of Stephen the first Christian martyr. We don't know how many more of those kinds of killings happened. Keep in mind that while the New Testament accounts are historically reliable, that doesn't mean that the New Testament tells us everything that happened. When we meet Saul again in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus, which is farther away from Jerusalem than Washington, D.C. is from Philadelphia. And he's traveling all of that distance. How many days would that have taken? He's traveling all of that distance because he wants to round up Christians and to bring them back in chains to Jerusalem where they're going to face the same fate that Stephen faced. And apparently he had been doing this kind of thing for quite a while because the people in Damascus already know about Saul before he gets there. Ananias, who we'll meet next week. Ananias says to Jesus, to the resurrected Jesus, Ananias says, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. We know from the things he will say later, we know from the things that Paul will write about himself at a later time that Saul was very zealous in his religion, that he was very careful and strict in following the law of Moses. Saul's hatred for the church, which at that time was simply called the way, Saul's hatred for the church and for the gospel was as strong as Saul's love for the temple and for the law. Saul was counting on his strict observance of the law of Moses to establish his righteousness. Saul feared God. Saul wanted to be right with God. For that we can respect him. And Saul understood that the gospel and what Jesus taught changed everything. As Saul, when he becomes Paul, will later write in Romans 3, 20 and 21, by the deeds of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight.
By doing the right thing, there's not one person who's going to be right with God. Zero. By the deeds of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the core of the gospel. It's as if, well, so that's the gospel as Paul explains it, as he's understood it. While he's still Saul, he hears this gospel and it unsettles him. It may have been as if you were a huge fan, imagine for a moment, a huge fan of the telegraph. You're the fellow who, you know, was a telegram delivery boy and then you rose up through the ranks of the telephone company and you love everything about telegraphs. You have what hath God wrought. The first message that was ever communicated on the telegraph. You have it tattooed on your body. You dream in Morse code. You name your first child Samuel Morris. Even though she's a girl. And then along comes some fellow. His name is Al Gore. And he invents something called the internet. And all of a sudden... Your whole world, your identity as the telegraph man collapses. I think that's what Saul felt like when Jesus came along. His whole system, his whole life had been wrapped up with keeping this law, with keeping these rules. And then Jesus teaches us that your righteousness isn't going to put you in good stead with God. That your righteousness actually needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And Saul was a super Pharisees. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, then you're not going to see the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus teaches. How can anyone's righteousness exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee? I mean, the Jews were the most righteous people on the planet. They were the only people to whom God had revealed His written law. And the Pharisees were the most righteous among the Jews, the most careful, the most zealous about keeping God's law. Asking someone to be more righteous than a Pharisee is just as crazy as asking someone to send a message faster than a telegraph operator. I mean, what's faster than Morse code over an electric wire? Well, how about videos streamed on the internet? Saul fought the message of Jesus because that message destroyed the foundation of his life. What's the foundation of your life? Saul had placed all of his hope and his trust in being right with God on his ability to keep God's law. But Jesus in his teaching revealed that the human heart, even when it tries to keep God's law, remains very far away from God. And what God really wants is our heart. The Pharisees, as you may know, were like crafty lawyers. They were good at twisting and bending God's law, keeping the letter of the law, but violating its spirit. Jesus said that the time was coming when people would worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry 
Jesus is teaching for those who were listening showed that we are sunk if we are pinning our hopes on keeping God's law. Many Christians today, many Christians misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus reveals that keeping God's law, uh, reveals what keeping God's law would really look like. The standard of human behavior that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful. It is admirable. But there is not one person in this room who lives that way. None of you live according to the Sermon on the Mount. Not one person. And if you're pinning your hope on being right before God by living according to the Sermon on the Mount, then you're in for a huge disappointment. Even the parts of the Sermon on the Mount that secular people love to quote, and secular people, pagans, love to quote the Sermon on the Mount, particularly to quote it to Christians, you know, passages like Judge Not, passages like Blessed Are the Peacemakers. How many of you are actually living that way? How many of you do not pass judgment? How many of you are creating peace around you. We would all like to be surrounded by people who are non-judgy, peaceable people, but 99 times, maybe 99, well, maybe more than 99 times out of 100, when you hear someone say, don't be so judgmental, they are in fact standing in judgment of the person they are speaking to. What Jesus is teaching on the law of God reveals in the Sermon on the Mount is that for us to have a saving relationship with God, we need something more than the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals the heart of the law, and the heart of the law is so stringent that we can't meet the demands of it. And so he reveals that we need something more than the law. For us to know God as Father... Our relationship with Him cannot be based on rules and laws. Now, I'm a father, and there are certain rules that, you know, I insist upon in my house. But my relationship with my children is not based upon them following the rules. Maybe you've met people who have a whole lot of rules. Things have to be a certain way. They get really upset. They get really unsettled if people aren't following the rules. And mind you, those rules might be very sensible. Those rules might be wise and helpful and prudent. Rules are important and the whole world would be a mess if we didn't have rules. But if my relationship with a person is based upon rules, then I actually don't have a relationship. And you will find that people with a whole lot of rules often have very few friendships. Because friendships are not based on rules. They're based on love and grace and kindness and forbearance. They're based on faith and on trust. People that you can't trust, they're not your friends. Abraham was called a friend of God, which I think is wonderful. May we all have that name one day, a friend of God. And, of course, Abraham lived before there was a law, before the law was given. 
But Abraham was counted righteous because he trusted God. And Abraham becomes the model of faith for biblical people down through the ages because of his trust in God. Saul had a law-governed approach to God. He tried to keep every rule. He thought that if he kept every law that God would be pleased with him. I think deep down all of us want God's love. All of us want our Father's love. Some of us were raised by overbearing, controlling, disapproving fathers. And that makes it hard for us to trust other people because we're always worried that, oh, you know, what's going to happen if I make a mistake? Am I going to be in trouble? And the sad thing is that children of disapproving parents, of parents whose love is contingent upon the performance of the child, those children not only suffer during their childhood, but they typically become disapproving parents themselves. Repeating the family pattern so that the sins of the father are visited on generation after generation. There is only one way to break the cycle of stunted and destroyed relationships. And that's to realize that relationships rest not on rules, but on love and grace and forgiveness and kindness and forbearance. The law will never set us free. The multiplication of rules might mm, make us feel safer, I guess. But it will strangle every relationship and it will keep us in prison. The strange thing is that people in that kind of prison, a prison of rule following and proving that you're worthy of love by keeping the law, people in that kind of prison are actually fearful of leaving their jail cell. Jesus opens the door and invites them to walk free, and they balk, isn't it dangerous out there? Won't there be chaos without rules? Now don't get me wrong, God's law is given to us for our safety. It is given to us for our well-being. If you follow God's law, and I encourage you to follow God's law, if you follow God's law, you will live longer, you will be more beautiful, and you will prosper. But God wants something much more for us than just our safety and our prosperity. God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to know us. He wants us to know that He loves us and that He cares for us. He wants to be our Father. And that's not about the law. That's about grace. That's about love. And love casts out all fear. When we know the love of God, we lose our fear. We lose our fear that our Father will reject us. Because of our failures. If I only love my daughter because she brings home straight A's from school. If I'm only delighted with my child because she does all of her chores without being asked. Then I'm not a father. I'm a tyrant. Seeking my own ease and comfort. Jesus teaches about the law in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And what he teaches there makes it crystal clear that none of us will ever get in God's good graces based upon our grade point average. But then Jesus, this is the second piece of the gospel, in going to the cross, bears the punishment for the sins of the church teaching the amazing lesson, the lesson where the gospel begins, that God's love for us is so grand and great that he himself bears the cost of our failures. All right? We have a free and a loving relationship with God. He really is our doting father. Not when God's uh, not when we meet God's high standards, but when we trust in him and have faith in him. Through Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ will display for you God's justice. God does punish sin. Absolutely. God's law stands forever. Absolutely. God displays his justice in the cross, but he also displays his mercy because he bears the brunt of that penalty. Now, Saul hates this message. Because he's married to the idea, Saul is married to the idea that he can and that he must win the approval of the Father of God through his performance, through his rule following, through his righteousness of the law. Once we understand Jesus' teaching about the law, we realize that we don't stand a chance based on our own efforts. And that creates a crisis. Do you see the problem? The gospel holds up the law. The gospel says the law is real. The gospel says there will be punishment for sin. And if I've been counting on that, on fulfilling God's law by myself, and then I learn that I can't, that's a crisis. All of a sudden, I'm not able to trust in myself. Saul knows, and I hope that you know, that God's law is irrevocable. Not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away, Jesus says. And if Jesus is right, that the law is so hard to keep, that no one has a chance, well then what are we going to do? Well, our only hope is to stop trusting in ourselves. And to start trusting in God. We throw ourselves on God's mercy and he receives us and he redeems us and he gives us his perfect righteousness. It's not ours. It's a secondhand righteousness. We get it from Christ. That's the gospel. Now Paul's going to later say that this gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to some, it's going to be the power of God for salvation. The gospel is mysterious to a lot of people, and I'm afraid that a lot of people uh, who have spent years in church still don't quite get the gospel. Many people in church are still counting on being good to please God, or they're counting on God, you know, abandoning His law and saying, oh, I didn't really mean those commandments after all. Okay, neither of those, by the way, is the gospel. On the one side, you have legalism. That says, oh, I'm going to, you know, God will, God will love me if I just follow every rule. And on the other side is liberalism, which, which says, well, you know, God, God was just kidding about the laws. Neither of those are the gospel. The gospel tells us that God's law stands and that it is holy. 
That's what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually raises the standard of the law. He doesn't lower the standard of the law. But the gospel also tells us that in the cross of Christ, the life that Christ lived, that in those two things, the demands of the law are met. And that we can receive that perfect righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's actually a strange message. It's different from everything else that the world teaches us. But it's also God's own truth. Now this morning I actually wanted to talk about uh, the conversion of Saul. Saul goes from being perhaps the greatest enemy of Christ to being perhaps his greatest supporter. It's an amazing turnaround. And it doesn't happen because Saul is looking for Jesus. It doesn't happen because Saul is pursuing the gospel. It happens because Jesus is looking for Saul. Jesus died because of people like Saul. Christians were being killed because of people like Saul. But God's love is so overwhelming that it pursues even people like Saul. Jesus personally appears to Saul. He's in his glorified body, you know. So this this body, the body that we're going to have after we die, will be, it glows. All right. And so when Jesus shows up in his glorified body, he's very bright. Apparently he was brighter than the noonday sun at that time. And the light coming off of Jesus is so strong that it blinds Saul. He's like temporarily blinded. But in his blindness, Saul finally sees what's important. For three days, he's led around by his hand, but Saul finally sees, he finally gets it, that Jesus is the Son of God. That Saul's own reliance upon keeping the law is really hopeless and foolish. That Jesus' perfect life and his atoning death obliterates death itself. Saul, of course, knew that Jesus had been crucified and he knew that the Christians were talking about Jesus having been raised from the dead. I'm sure he thought that it was foolishness. And then Jesus shows up and it becomes clear that whatever's going on with Jesus, that it changes death. Paul wanted that. The love of God displayed in Jesus Christ actually abolishes death itself. Saul finally understands. God's grace overcomes Saul's blindness, his arrogance, his hardness of heart. And Saul, in that moment, is born again. It's a new life. He gets a new life. He gets a second life. I wish we all would have conversion experiences like Saul's. But God meets each one of us where we are and he gives each one of us what we need. If you haven't had an experience like Saul, it probably means that you are not as big of a knucklehead as Saul was. Each person that calls, uh, that is called by God into God's flock, each person who's been called to follow Jesus has some moment in which the light goes on for them and the gospel begins to make sense and in that moment the will is activated and it's enabled to say yes to Christ, to God. God will give us what we need. It may not be as dramatic as Paul. 
But after Jesus blinds Saul, after Jesus knocks him to the ground and illuminates his mind, I love Saul's response. Lord, what do you want me to do? For all of these years, he had been living in defiance of Christ. For all of these years, he had been living in this false hope. And in this moment, in this road to Damascus moment, the light goes on and he sees that. Sometimes in your life, you will realize that the whole, all of this stuff that you've been doing has been based upon a false premise. And you may have elaborated theories and long family practice for why you're doing things the way you're doing. But sometimes in a moment, you realize, oh, wow, that, uh, uh, I, uh, that, that just isn't going to work anymore. It happens with Saul. I think that's what happens in conversion. Lord, what do you want me to do? He's not pointing to his past good intentions or his past performance. It's like, okay, what should I do now? I'm a great believer uh, in people's ability to change and to change radically. Now, uh, my years in the pastorate have taught me that people can be stupendously stubborn in remaining in old patterns. But I've also seen people make radical transformations. And I think a piece of that ability to make radical transformations is to ask that question. What do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do now? Not, it's not past oriented, it's future oriented. What do you want me to do? It's a great prayer. Have you ever prayed that prayer? What do you want me to do? I just want to spend some time uh, here before the band comes back up just praying that. The Saul's prayer, prayer. What do you want me to do prayer? I think it actually, it might apply in almost every circumstance of our lives. What do you want me to do? So let's pray. What do you want me to do? I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? Lord, you know where I've been and you know who I have been. And you know the things in my life that are not the way that that they should be or the things that are unhelpful to others around me, things that are making me miserable. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord Jesus, we have trusted ourselves in the past and we've made decisions based on our own wisdom. And you see where that's gotten us. So Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord God, there are times when we come to the end of ourselves. And we have in that moment the opportunity turn to you 
And we know that what you want above all else is that we would trust you and love you as our Father. What do you want us to do? Lord, we ask that your will will be done in our lives and in our world. We ask that your will will be done in our communities and in our families. We ask that your will would be done in our marriages and in our congregation. Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus, you are God. You are our Redeemer. And you loved us. Give us this day the trust, the faith to lean on you and to tell us what you would do. Amen.